All right, so we will return now to the series on the attributes of God. It's been a while, but uh, we'll try to pick up uh, where we left off last time. We talked about the sovereignty of God, and I believe we have some visitors back then who weren't necessarily Calvinists, so I hope that was a very providential message for them to hear. Now, this, for this Sunday, we will be talking about the truthfulness of God, the truthfulness of God. Uh, and that means that God is, of course, a God of truth. His very essence is that of truth. Everything that is not true is therefore a direct attack on his essence and on his, his very being, his nature. So the fact that God is a God of truth means that everything he has said is true. Everything we have recorded in the Bible, in the scripture, is true. We can have full confidence in everything that God has said, in His promises. And uh, that is, of course, because God cannot lie. God is not like man, that He could lie. But He does everything He says He will do. So this attribute is also, therefore, linked with His faithfulness, because God is never faithless like man is faithless. He always keeps His word, because He cannot lie, He cannot be faithless. His actions are always done in accordance with what, we, what he has revealed to us with his will. And in contrast to this, we have, of course, false gods. God is the true God, but there are many other so-called gods created by man, but they are all false gods. They are called false because they are not true. God is the only true God, and they are all false gods. <clears throat> Now we will divide this study of the truthfulness of God into three different aspects. I want us to focus on three very foundational claims for Christian belief. And that is the one that I already mentioned, that God is truth. Second is that God's word is truth. And third, that God's, God is faithful and trustworthy. So let's dive into this study with these three points in mind. First of all, that God is Truth. What would we mean when we say that God is truth? That sounds like a very abstract thing to say, God is truth. Well, it means that all truth comes from God. Truth does not live in a vacuum. Truth does not spring up from the culture around us. Truth is not invented by scientists or philosophers. It is not something that even tradition comes up with. Truth comes from God, exclusively from the mind of God. Truth is whatever God says something is. So I want to really emphasize this point. And uh, because we, again, we live in a time when everything is supposed to be relative and everybody has their kind of truth. Postmodernism is, is a thing where, where people say that you can be right and I can be right and he can be right and everybody can be right. Truth is relative. It's relative to who you are. It's relative to the, the perspective of, of the person. Uh, and in contrast with this, we, of course, believe in absolute truth. There is only one truth. It comes down from the one being who never changes, the one being who's eternal and who is not relative as we are, who is absolute. We, uh, we don't believe in, in that in uh, mainstream media coming up with the truth or scientists telling us the truth. Science is settled is an expression that you might have heard that people like to use when they, they want to really just propagate uh, an agenda. They want to say that this thing has been settled by science and more often than not it means that it has not at all been settled. It's very, very questionable. But they want to tell us that science is settled. Science has told us the truth. We have scientists and philosophers and professors and teachers and people in, in power who wants to make claims to the truth. They are the ones who tell you the truth. But uh, we know that unless there's a God, a God creator, a God who never changes, a God who is above everything, there is no truth. In a godless world, there is only confusion. There is only Maybes There is never an absolute truth, never anything that they can hold for certain ever. 
Because again, where are they going to find that absolute truth? Who's going to be able to tell them this is always true and never false? Who's going to be the arbiter who can divide between right and false? It's not going to be human rulers. We've seen through history how rulers are the first ones to be corrupted who they, when they get power, when they get the, the ability to make decisions on, on many people's lives. They easily get corrupted. They are, they are uh, led away by their, by, by their own selfish ambitions, their, their desires, their, their self-interests. And same thing with uh, today's rulers, the experts, the ones who, who have all the knowledge, all the expert knowledge on, on their, their little topic, their little subject. Are they the ones who tell us the truth? Are not they also under the same uh, risk of being corrupted, of being driven by their own self-interests? We know that they are. They are human beings just as, just as we are. So there are no independent, um, perfect arbiter who can make a perfect decision between what is right and what is wrong, between what is true and what is false. There will always be a doubt when a, a human being comes and says that this is true. But we have someone who is above all this, who is truly... Uh, unrelated to human corruption, to human sin, who is not uh, driven by his own self-interest, and that is, of course, God. God is the one who decides what is true because he is the only one who stands above everything else. He has created everything else. He is the truth. So, uh, and then the second point I also want to mention that is if... Uh, God was not a truthful God, if God was not the, the God of truth, we would not be able to, to know who God is. None of the other attributes of God would make, make any sense to us. They could all just be his, uh, his manipulation of us. He could say that he's a God who will save you today and then tomorrow he will change his mind and he will tell you, no, no, you, you have to do this in order to be saved. If God is not truthful, if God is not who he says he is, then we cannot know anything about him for sure. We have a God who is very vague. So God's essence, all the attributes of God, depends on the fact that he is truthful, that everything he says is always true and trustworthy. So this attribute, the truthfulness of God is very foundational for us all, for us all to know anything at all. We need it to know that God is who he says he is, <coughs> and God is not a God who lies. Let's turn to our first text of us uh, for today. It's Numbers 23, just one verse. Numbers 23, verse 19, and we'll see that God says that he's not a God who will lie like man. 23, verse 19. Where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? A man is depicted as someone who lies, someone who, who changes his mind, who repents. And in contrast to this, God is said to be a, a, a God who cannot lie. He cannot lie like man. He cannot repent like a son of man. For him to do or to say something means that he will do it. He ha has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? If God says something, he will do it. And he will do it good. He will not only do it as in do this task, but he will do it good. Everything that God does is good. And we also know this because it's always true. He never lies. He is, he is the only one who can, <clears throat> who can stand above all this kind of uh, uncertainty where lies are so common and where deceit is so common. As we read in the psalm today, God, the psalmist was dis in distress because there were deceitful tongues who spoke badly about him. But God is not a deceitful God, a God who lies, a God who spreads slander. 
So God will not lie, not like man. And by extension, if God is, is, is not truthful like, like man is not truthful, then we cannot know anything at all to be perfectly true. I, I already mentioned a little bit about this, but if we lived in a truly godless world, if there was no absolute truth, we would, we would not know anything to be perfectly true. He's the only one who can make the final decision, who can, who can uh, uh, be the ultimate arbiter. So for truth to exist, for us to even have a, a concept of truth, we must have a God who is truthful, not like man who lies, not like the Son of Man who repents and changes his mind. So to claim that you can find truth anywhere else, like many people do, they, they say they are truth seekers. I remember back in, in 20 years ago after the 9-11 attacks and there were a lot of conspiracy theorists and some of them called themselves truth seekers. And I found that very, very ironical because all they did was spread lies, really. But people call themselves truth seekers. They seek after truth. They seek after what they perceive as the truth, which is often just their desire, their agenda. Um, so, so to seek truth anywhere else but in God is really to make God to be a, 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 a God of liar, a God of uh, untruthfulness, a God who is, who is not who he says he is. It's really to just replace God with a false God, to seek after truth in another place where it is not to be found, to seek it um, anywhere else but in God. Let's go to another text. Hosea chapter 4. Book of Hosea. Now the, in the, the book of Hosea was written during uh, the time of the northern kingdom. The ten tribes who separated from the kingdom of, of Judah. Um, and it was written in about 700s before Christ. Just a few years before the, the kingdom was... Uh, was uh, destroyed when the Assyrians came and led away the, the people in captivity. And uh, one of the reasons they were led away in captivity was because they had, they had uh, turned away from the one and true God, the only God. They had turned to false gods. So let's go to Hosea chapter 4 and let's read, read verse 1. Hosea 4 verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. The, the people of Israel, sons of, 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 of Israel, are, are here made out to be a nation that has no, no faithfulness, or, or in the footnote it says they have no truth might say, say so in your Bible. There is no truth or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. These people who have turned away from God, who have turned to false gods, had no truth. They were void of truth. They were a nation who were not associated with the truth of God anymore. This is what happens when you turn after false gods. This is what happens when you, when you seek truth in some other place, then you all of a sudden does not have any truth, because truth is only found in God. And of course, this would lead to their, their demise, to their destruction. The Syrians would come, they would conquer the land, they would let away the people in captivity, for them never to return. That was the judgment that God put on the Israelites, the sons of Israel, the ones who had known the only true God, who had known the truth and turned away from it. They were destroyed and never to return. So that was the first point, that God is a God of truth. We need to worship God as a God of truth. We need to serve God as a God of truth. We need to walk before Him in truth. We need to esteem the truth of God to rejoice in the truth of God, to speak the truth of God, to meditate upon it, to write it on our hearts and on our, on our minds. This glorifies God when we esteem His truth, the only truth, the truth that is found only in God. Now, the second point that I mentioned was that God's Word is the truth. 
God's word is the truth. If God is a God of truth and uh, everything he says is true, then uh, consequently his word must be true. The written word of God must be the truth. If you, if you believe that God is a God of truth, but deny that the Bible is always true, you have really not believed that God is truthful. God is a God of truth. Um, this is, uh, I, I've divided this second point into two points as well here. First point is that all of God's word is true and trustworthy. All of God's truth is true. All of God's words are is true and trustworthy. We have, we have just read through, we have considered Psalm 119, the, the big mountain that Psalm 119 is. And in this Psalm, I hope you, you, you noticed as we went through it, how, how often the psalmist makes reference to the word of God, to his, his commandments, how he esteems the truth, how he, he uh, always turns to the to, to uh, his word, the word of God. It's, he's often in distress. He's often uh, persecuted by enemies, but he always, always, always turns to the, to the word of God. Uh, just quickly, if you want to turn there to Psalm 119, uh, can pick up on a few verses as we, we have just read them in the past weeks. Verse 142 to begin with. Um, there we go. 142, where it says, um, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. And in the verses before it, he said, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. And then, then in verse 143, Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. This psalmist is is small, he's despised, his enemies don't value him, value him at all. They, uh, they, they attack him, they uh, um, persecute him. Trouble and anguish is, is always upon him. And yet his delight, his comfort in this hour of trial is your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Your word, God, is always true. Even though people attack me and find many false things to say about me. Your word is always true. And then in verse 151, he says, uh, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Not just some parts of his commandments, not just some parts of the Bible, but all of it. Totas scripturas, the reformers said, all of the Bible is true. All of it. Then in Psalm 160 as well. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So we see again and again how the psalmist reiterates for himself. He doesn't need to remind God, obviously. But he needs to remind himself that all of God's word is truth. The sum of your word. If we take everything that God has revealed to us. And we, we condense it into a, a, a sum, then we know it is truth. It is truth. So over and over and over, the psalmist turns to the word of God, finding comfort in, finding comfort in the fact that all of the word of God is indeed true. And then the second point for this second point, the, sec, the sub, se, second sub point of this main second point is that God's word is firm and steady as a rock, unmovable, unalterable, infallible, perfect and inerrant. I already mentioned a little bit about these things that there are people who want to deny the inerrancy of, of the word of God and yet they want to claim that they believe in a God of truth. They want to hold to the orthodox faith that God is always truthful. God is the God of truth. Yet they want to say that we can see some factual errors here in the Bible. They want to make a distinction between infallibility and inerrancy. And what's, what's, the, what's the distinction between them? There's not, not really any distinction at all for biblical Christians. But for some people who want to say again that God is infallible. He never makes mistakes. There's nothing in the major portions of the Bible which are false. Yet there are some factual errors. 
But how could there be factual errors in the Bible, or even just some small errors, if God is really truthful, if His Word is always true? And we, and I say we, as I hope we all believe this, are biblical Christians who believe that all of God's Word, just like the psalmist in Psalm 119, believe that all the word, the words in the Bible, all the words recorded for us are true. True forever. We, we can turn to one of the most known passages on, on the inspiration of the Bible. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. We'll just quickly see what the Apostle Paul says about the inspiration of the Word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Or we can take, yeah, 16 and 17. It says like this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here we see that all of the word of God, all of it, all scripture is inspired by God. It's not as in that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and, and suddenly he got an inspiration from God and he wrote it down and then he just went away and he finished the letter with his own words. No, all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is inspired by God, the true God. So then, if God is true, which we all believe, and God is a God of truth, God is truthful and trustworthy, then all of Scripture, which He has inspired, which are His words, must also be true. It's a, it's a very logical uh, conclusion that if God is truthful, then all of His words must be truthful because all of His words are indeed inspired. Men wrote it down. Fallible men wrote it down. And un for us to this day, we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have something that's very close to it. The, the translations can contain errors. We, we all probably know about some translational error, some editorial error in the Bibles that we have. But God, God's Word in the original, in, in the original manuscripts, are perfect and true. There are no errors in it, no uh, mistakes. All of God's Word is true. Again, Psalm 119, you don't have to turn back there, but the psalmist there in 119 says that forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It is immovable. It is steady, steady as a rock. Nothing can change. It's not, not man's opinions about what the word of God should be or thoughts about his word being uh, not infallible, but rather having some mistakes, some errors in it. No, the word of God lasts forever. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Everything in the word of God will stand. Men's opinions will fade away. Men's uh, philosophies and politicians' opinions and rulings, all of it will pass away. It's just for temporary, for a temporary time, but God's word is unmovable and steady, like a rock, perfect, inerrant, infallible, will last forever. So Jesus then tells us in the very last words of, of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, who, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. This is the rock that we stand on, the rock that stands forever for sure. You can know it. It will not move. When the storms come and when it, the rain falls and when the winds blow and it slams against us, we will stand because if we stand on the word which lasts forever, which is always true, all of it, we are as sure as Jesus himself is. So that's point number two, that all of 
God's word is true. Now let's move into point number three, which is God is faithful and trustworthy. And this is the one that I hope will make most application to you all in your daily lives. Point number three, God is faithful and trustworthy. So we have seen now that God is a God of truth, that God's word is always true. All of God's word is always true. And now, therefore, we will... We will uh, Meditate on the fact that God is trustworthy, God is faithful. So let's consider that by uh, consider his covenants. And we, we read about covenants in the Bible, how God establishes covenants with, uh, with certain men in history. And uh, how we can see from these covenants that God always keeps them. He gives a promise, he enters into a covenant, and he always keeps it. Now, what, now, first of all, what is the word covenant? We, we hear about, about that word a lot, but what does it actually mean? Uh, the word covenant means an oath-bound promise. It's something you enter into with an oath. You swear to keep it with a, a very strong punishment coming your way if you, if you dare to break it. And, and, and covenant could be entered into by two parties who, who promised to do some kind, some kind of service to each other. It was a binding relationship where they promised to serve, in some sense, one another. And in Genesis 15, let's turn there. Genesis 15, God will enter into a covenant with Abraham, or Abram as he's called there. Genesis chapter 15. Um, we'll give Abraham an, a promise of a son, an heir, uh, an heir from his flesh. There goes Spurgeon flying. Uh, an heir and a, a, a great nation, a great multitude of people that will come from his flesh, even though Abraham was old and even though he, he didn't think that he would be able to conceive uh, children anymore. But God gives him the promise that he will get a son and a multitude of people will will be coming from his seed. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then he goes on in, in, from verse 7. You can pick up there. And God will give him a, a promise of a land. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, heifer, however you say that, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and let each half up opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at, an old, at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amor Amorite is not yet complete. And it came up about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. We can end there. So this, this is the promise that God gives to Abram here in Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> give him a nation, give him a, a land to possess, or rather his, his descendants would, give, would receive a nation, a vast nation. Now, Abraham was a man of faith, as we, read, we you could see here in the text. He believed God, still had his doubts. 
he still wondered, how is this possible? How can you, God, uh, make sure for me that your promise is true, that you will hold your promise? Um, and the thing that God does here is he's, he's entering into a covenant and he has Abraham to bring him a few animals and cut them in two. And what's the significance of this? Why, why would we have all this kind of seemingly strange and random things happening? Um, this was a, a part of, a, of entering into a covenant in, in these ancient times that you would, you would establish it with blood. You would take an animal, you would cut it into two and, and you would walk between the pieces and by this, you would signify that if I break this promise, if I don't do what I have told you I will do, let it be with me as it was with these animal, with this animal that is cut into two. Let my body be cut into two. Let my blood be spilled if I break this promise. It was a very visual uh, reminder of, of the curse they brought upon themselves if they did not keep this covenant. So here in this text, God is entering into a covenant with Abraham. He's doing so to show his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his ability to keep the promise that he has given Abraham. And the text says that God, in the form of a smoking oven and flaming torch, passed between the pieces of the animals. And that signal the established covenant that God had entered into it to give to Abraham and to his descendants this land. This was truly significant. I don't know if you, if you realize how, how revolutionary this is, that God would enter into a covenant, that God would take upon himself to, to uh, uh, walk between the pieces of, of, a, of a cut animal, and, and to really signify to Abraham, if I don't keep my promise, if I don't keep my word, then let it be with my eternal being as it is with this animal. Let my eternal divine being suffer mutation. Let my blood be shed if, if it could be shed. God is really putting his whole essence, his whole being on the line just to keep this one promise, a promise of land. Showing to Abraham how secure his promise, his promise is by entering into a covenant. Some, uh, some distractions. Uh, but let us distract that from the word of God. The author of the Hebrews commenting on this text said and much later on that for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could not swear since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God had nothing higher to swear by. He could not find a, a, a temple or a, an altar or anything at all that would be higher than himself to swear by. So he swore by himself. himself. He put his whole being, his essence, his uh, credibility on the line. He swore by himself. And again, he would not course break the promise that would mean that his whole being would need to cease to exist if possible to cut his 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 being into two god does not lie because that would mean that god could not exist anymore that's how significant this this event was i believe it's rc scroll who said if he could take one chapter and one verse with him into into prison and nothing else it would be this verse um, verse 18 on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that God would enter into a covenant it's so earth shattering it is so almost incomprehensible that God, the almighty God who has created us would give such a, a sure promise that he will do what he has said he will do so that's the first thing that God keeps his his covenants, and we of course know that from, from the rest of the scripture, how he, he led the, the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. He would keep his promise. Now the second sub-point is that God is faithful to save 
to the utmost. God is faithful to save to the utmost, completely and fully. This same, same God that gave Abraham a promise, a promise of land, has given us much greater promises. Promises that we, I don't even know if we understand how great they are, how vast they are, how, how incomprehensible they are. And what are these promises? We have, he has given us the promise of forgiveness of sin, of uh, being declared righteous, and of being given eternal life. So we have the promise of forgiveness. Do you know where that is in the Bible? It's in several places, but we can go to Mark chapter 2, and we'll see a very uh, concrete situation where God, or Jesus rather, gives the forgiveness of sins. Mark chapter 2. You can read from verse 3. This is the story of the paralytic that is being lowered down into, into a house where Jesus is. Uh, he's healed. So let's read from verse 3 in Mark chapter 2. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately and picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Here Christ, who is God, is able to give a promise of the forgiveness of sins. And uh, this extraordinary promise, this thing that only God could do, was causing quite a lot of controversy and reaction among those who were sitting there, who were listening to him. It says that the, uh, the scribes who were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? And they were right to think that way. I mean, not they, they had a, a, an evil heart, they had evil intentions, but the very idea that, that a man, someone created, could forgive sins is blaspheming. It is a right that only God has to forgive sins. But Jesus is not just any man. He's not a created man. He is God. He can give this promise and not just give the promise, but actually fulfill it because he is God, because he is the Savior God. And he gives it to whom? What does the text say, say here? Uh, in verse, verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus gives the promise of forgiveness of, of sins to the one who has faith, to the one who believes. This is not a condition for us so that we must produce our faith, but Jesus seeing faith, faith that God has given, gives forgiveness of sins. Jesus has this power. Jesus is the God of truthfulness. Jesus can really forgive our sins. And he gives it to the one who believes. He gives it to all those who believe this day, who say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I have but little faith. Forgive my sins. Jesus tells you, your sins are forgiven. And just to show that he truly is God, he also, at the very end here, tells us that he has the authority to forgive sins. He tells the, the, the paralytic man, I say, get up, pick up your pallet and go. And the man got up, he picked up his pallet, and he went away. 
This way, glorifying God. This is the power of God working. This is the God of truth showing that he has not only, not only the power to uh, raise up the, the paralytics to heal the sick, but also the power to forgive sins. <clears throat> now, the second promise that I mentioned was the promise of being declared righteous. Let's go to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. We'll talk a little bit more about Abraham. Romans chapter 4. We'll read from verse 1 where it says, What then shall we say to Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wage, who works his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We have here the, the Apostle Paul meditating upon Abraham and the faith that Abraham showed. The faith that was credited to him as righteousness. As righteousness. God, God uh, declared Abraham righteous simply because he believed. That is the whole point, the whole essence of this text is that we do not need to produce works to be declared righteous. All that is needed is to believe. This is the righteousness, righteousness that comes down from God. It comes by a very specific means, and that is faith. Now, this promise of being declared or credited righteous, as it says here in the text, is a, a, a promise that God gives not just to everyone. We have the whole Old Testament talking about the people of Israel trying to keep the law, trying to do what the law demanded, and always failing. We have many good people, good, in quotation marks, good people throughout history who have tried and tried and tried to keep the law of God and always failed. They always came short of their goal to keep the whole law. There is only one man who has ever kept the whole law perfectly, the man Jesus Christ. And this, even if Abraham did not know about Jesus, did not know about the incarnate Son of God, still saw in the promises of God a Savior to come through the, his seed. And he believed, he believed that God would be able to raise up a Savior, a man perfect enough to keep the whole law, so that by his righteousness, that they who believe in him will be credited as righteous, getting his righteousness. This is what we talked about a few years ago, ago at the conference, the Sola Fide conference, Faith Alone. That faith alone is what declares us just. The righteousness that comes through faith alone is the righteousness that Abraham had. We do not produce this work, this, this work of faith. Again, it is given to us, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, this is the gift of God, the faith that you have received. And that faith is the one that by which God declares us just, by which declares, God declares the ungodly just. He justifies the ungodly. Verse, verse 5 here. It's Abraham had this faith. Abraham believed God, believed God's word, believed God's promise and was declared righteous. And this promise and this righteousness is only not Abraham's. It is all of us who believe today. We can all believe in God's promise. All believe that God will raise up his people and be declared just. We can believe in his son, the Messiah, who has kept the whole law, 
whose righteousness is perfect, and we will be credited righteous, receive his righteousness, wear it as a robe. <coughs> this is the promise of being declared righteous that was given to Abraham and to all those who believe like him. Then finally, the last promise I, I mentioned was the promise of eternal life. Let's go to the most common verse, commonly quoted verse in the Bible. John chapter 3, verse, read from verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 and 16 says, As Moses, lift, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man so, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes. That is the promise. Promised by a God who is trustworthy. If you believe, you will be given eternal life. If you put your trust in Jesus, His promise is you will have eternal life. You cannot be destroyed. You cannot be plucked away from the hand of God. In, in John chapter 6, just turn there quickly if you want, He, he, he is uh, being questioned by the Jews and he, he tells them there in verse 37, uh, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him and will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate a believer from Jesus Christ. This is the will of the Father. The will that the Son is doing to this day to lose no one. All those who believe, he will keep to the very end. He will raise them up. He puts himself, his, his, whole, his whole person on the line and he says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is not something that, that just will happen automatically. The Father will raise you up or the Spirit will raise you up. I will raise you up. You who hear my words this day, I will raise you up, Jesus says, if you believe. I lose nothing for what the Father has given me. I have come to do the will of my Father. This is the will that I want to do and keep to the very end. If Jesus has saved you and fails to raise you up at the very end, he's not trustworthy. His faithfulness is gone. He's no longer God. For Jesus to be God, he must raise you up at the last day. And he will. He will raise you up. So, put your faith in Him just this day. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Believe His promises that He will give you forgiveness of sins, being declared righteous, and being given eternal life. Those are the promises that Jesus gives us in the New Testament. We don't even have to go to the Old Testament and see the promises of given to Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Jacob. We can go to, to Mark and Matthew and Luke and John and see Jesus giving us these promises given to us, us this day, us who believe. That's what we're known by, we who believe. Only believe, Jesus said to the man who, whose daughter was dying. Only believe. Are you... Believing in this Son, this God, this God who is faithful, this God of truth, of truthfulness, this God who never fails his promises, who never breaks his covenants, this God who has sent his Son, his only Son, to die for a sinner like you and me 
Are you putting faith in that God and in that Savior? That is what the text is calling us to do this, this day, this Sunday. Don't, don't waste this opportunity. Don't waste the fact that God is now speaking directly to you. He's, he's letting you hear his own words he has, that he has preserved for thousands of years for you to hear. What makes you so special that God would have patience with you? That God would pour out his, his own son for your sake? Just believe. Only believe. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Believe in him. Trust in him. And he will give you eternal life. Now as we conclude this study of the truthfulness of God, just remember that all of it, all of it is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not the Savior, if Jesus is not who he says he is, if Jesus doesn't hold the promises that he gives, we do not have a God who is truthful and faithful. But we know that Jesus saves. We know that Jesus will keep his promise and raise us up on the very last day because he is God. He is the true God. In his name, amen. amen. Let's end in prayer. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have given throughout your word for the promise of forgiveness of sins, of being declared just before you, of being given eternal life. Father, we thank you for your Son, for the Lord Jesus, who has put his whole life on the line, his essence, his person, that we could have this kind of promises, that we can look to them and believe and be saved. Oh, Father, we thank you. We cannot even comprehend how great a promise this is and how good you are who gives us this promise. You had no uh, reason to do it. You could just have sent us to hell and it would have been good. But instead, you showed mercy and grace and let your son die for our sake. You gave us a promise that we did not deserve only to show your grace and your goodness. Oh, Lord, help us believe. Help us believe that you are a God of truth, a God who never fails, a God who is God forever and whose word will last forever. Help us, Lord, to find comfort in your word day in and day out until our Lord returns in glory. Oh, Lord, we ask these things and we ask for those who are not saved here among us. Oh, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on them, that their hearts would be captivated, they would be pierced, they would not find peace anywhere else but in you. Oh, Lord, save them. Save them as you saved us. Please, Lord, we ask, let Jesus be their Savior. Now, Lord, we thank you for speaking to us this Sunday, for showing who you are to us, for comforting us and ensuring us that you are the God of truth, now and forever. In your word we trust, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.